Welcome to the Ardent Archives, a ministry of North Clay Baptist Church. Here we explore the writings of church history in order to edify and equip the saints in their ongoing discipleship. During this series, we are reading and discussing On the Incarnation by Athanasius of Alexandria. In this small volume, Athanasius expounds on the truths of Christ's incarnation with great precision and clarity. Written in the 4th century AD, there have been few works since that time that have come close to being as rich and concise in their explanation of this vital doctrine. So sit back and prepare to have your heart and mind engaged as we dive into On the Incarnation by Athanasius of Alexandria. Chapter 3, The Divine Dilemma and Its Solution in the Incarnation, Continued. When God the Almighty was making mankind through His own word, He perceived that they, owing to the limitation of their nature, could not of themselves have any knowledge of their artificer, the incorporeal and uncreated. He took pity on them, therefore, and did not leave them destitute of the knowledge of Himself, lest their very existence should prove purposeless. For of what use is existence to the creature if it cannot know its maker? How could men be reasonable beings if they had no knowledge of the word and reason of the Father, through whom they had received their being? They would be no better than the beasts, had they no knowledge save of earthly things. And why should God have made them at all? if he had not intended them to know him. But, in fact, the good God has given them a share in his own image, that is, in our Lord Jesus Christ, and has made even themselves after the same image and likeness. Why? Simply in order that through this gift of God-likeness, in themselves they may be able to perceive the image absolute, that is, the Word Himself, and through Him to apprehend the Father, which knowledge of their Maker is for men the only really happy and blessed life. But, as we have already seen, men, foolish as they are, thought little of the grace they had received and turned away from God. They defiled their own soul so completely that they not only lost their apprehension of God, but invented for themselves other gods of various kinds. They fashioned idols for themselves in place of the truth and reverence things that are not, rather than God who is. As St. Paul says, worshiping the creature rather than the creator. Moreover, and much worse, they transferred the honor which is due to God to material objects such as wood and stone and also to man. And further even that they went, as we said in our former book. Indeed, so impious were they that they worshipped evil spirits as gods in satisfaction of their lusts. They sacrificed brute beasts and immolated men as the just due of these deities, thereby bringing themselves more and more under their insane control. Magic arts also were taught among them. Oracles in sundry places led men astray, and the cause of everything in human life was traced to the stars. 
as though nothing existed but that which could be seen. In a word, impiety and lawlessness were everywhere, and neither God nor his word was known. Yet he had not hidden himself from the sight of men, nor given the knowledge of himself in one way only, but rather he had unfolded it in many forms and by many ways. God knew the limitation of mankind, you see, and though the grace of being made in his image was sufficient to give them knowledge of the word and through him of the Father, as a safeguard against their neglect of his grace, he provided the works of creation also as means by which the maker might be known. Nor was this all. Man's neglect of the indwelling grace tends ever to increase. And against this further frailty also, God made provision by giving them a law and by sending prophets, men whom they knew. Thus, if they were tardy in looking up to heaven, they might still gain knowledge of their maker from those close at hand. For men can learn directly about higher things from other men. Three ways thus lay open to them by which they might obtain the knowledge of God. They could look up into the immensity of heaven and by pondering the harmony of creation come to know its ruler, the word of the Father, whose all-ruling providence makes known the Father to all. Or, if this was beyond them, they could converse with holy men and through them learn to know God, the artificer of all things, the Father of Christ and to recognize the worship of idols as the negation of the truth and full of all impiety. Or else, in the third place, they could cease from lukewarmness and lead a good life merely by knowing the law. For the law was not given only for the Jews, nor was it solely for their sake that God sent the prophets, though it was to the Jews that they were sent and by the Jews that they were persecuted. The law and the prophets were a sacred school of the knowledge of God and the conduct of the spiritual life for the whole world. So great indeed were the goodness and the love of God, yet men bowed down by the pleasures of the moment and by the frauds and illusions of the evil spirits, did not lift up their heads towards the truth. So burdened were they with their wickedness that they seemed rather to be brute beasts than reasonable men, reflecting the very likeness of the word. What was God to do in face of this dehumanizing of mankind, this universal hiding of the knowledge of himself by the wiles of evil spirits? Was he to keep silence before so great a wrong and let men go on being thus deceived and kept in ignorance of himself? If so, what was the use of having made them in his own image originally? It would surely have been better for them always to have been brutes rather than to revert to that condition when once they had shared the nature of the word. Again, things being as they were, what was the use of their ever having had the knowledge of God? Surely it would have been better for God never to have bestowed it 
than that men should subsequently be found unworthy to receive it. Similarly, what possible profit could it be to God himself who made men if when made they did not worship him but regarded others as their makers? This would be tantamount to his having made them for others and not for himself. Even an earthly king, though he is only a man, does not allow lands that he has colonized to pass into other hands or to desert to other rulers, but sends letters and friends and even visits them himself to recall them to their allegiance rather than allow his work to be undone. How much more then will God be patient and painstaking with his creatures that they be not led astray from him to the service of those that are not and that all the more because such error means for them sheer ruin and because it is not right that those who had once shared his image should be destroyed. What then was God to do? What else could he possibly do, being God, but renew his image in mankind, so that through it men might once more come to know him? And how could this be done save by the coming of the very image himself, our Savior, Jesus Christ? Men could not have done it, for they are only made after the image, nor could angels have done it, for they are not the images of God. The Word of God came in His own person because it was He alone, the image of the Father, who could recreate man made after the image. In order to effect this recreation, however, He had first to do away with death and corruption. Therefore, he assumed a human body in order that in it death might once for all be destroyed and that men might be renewed according to the image. The image of the Father only was sufficient for this need. Here is an illustration to prove it. You know what happens when a portrait that has been painted on a panel becomes obliterated through external stains. The artist does not throw away the panel, but the subject of the portrait has to come and sit for it again. And then the likeness is redrawn on the same material. Even so was it with the all-holy Son of God. He, the image of the Father, came and dwelt in our midst in order that he might renew mankind made after himself and seek out his lost sheep. Even as he says in the gospel, I came to seek and to save that which was lost. This also explains his saying to the Jews, except a man be born anew. He was not referring to a man's natural birth from his mother, as they thought, but to the rebirth and recreation of the soul in the image of God. Nor was this the only thing which only the word could do. When the madness of idolatry and irreligion filled the world and the knowledge of God was hidden, whose part was it to teach the world about the Father? Man's, would you say? 
but men cannot run everywhere over the world, nor would their words carry sufficient weight if they did, nor would they be unaided a match for the evil spirits. Moreover, since even the best of men were confused and blinded by evil, how could they convert the souls and minds of others? You cannot put straight in others what is warped in yourself. Perhaps you will say then that creation was enough to teach men about the Father. But if that had been so, such great evils would never have occurred. Creation was there all the time, but it did not prevent men from wallowing in error. Once more then, it was the Word of God who sees all that is in man and moves all things in creation, who alone could meet the needs of the situation. It was his part and his alone, whose ordering of the universe reveals the Father to renew the same teaching. But how was he to do it? By the same means as before. Perhaps you will say, that is through the works of creation. But this was proven insufficient. Men had neglected to consider the heavens before, and now they were looking in the opposite direction. Wherefore, in all naturalness and fitness, desiring to do good to men, as man he dwells, taking to himself a body like the rest, and through his actions done in that body, as it were on their own level, he teaches those who would not learn by other means to know himself, the word of God, and through him, the Father. He deals with them as a good teacher with his pupils, coming down to their level and using simple means. St. Paul says as much, because in the wisdom of God, the world in its wisdom knew not. God thought fit through the simplicity of the news proclaimed to save those who believe. Men had turned from the contemplation of God above and were looking for him in the opposite direction, down among created things and things of sense. The Savior of us all, the Word of God, in His great love, took to Himself a body and moved as man among men, meeting their senses, so to speak, halfway. He became himself an object for the senses, so that those who were seeking God and sensible things might apprehend the Father through the works which he, the Word of God, did in the body. Human and human-minded as men were, therefore, to whichever side they looked in the sensible world, they found themselves taught the truth. Were they all stricken by creation? They beheld it, confessing Christ as Lord. Did their minds tend to regard men as gods? The uniqueness of the Savior's works marked him alone of men as son of God. Were they drawn to evil spirits? They saw them driven out by the Lord and learned that the word of God alone was God and that the evil spirits were not gods at all. Were they inclined to hero worship and the cult of the dead? 
then the fact that the Savior had risen from the dead showed them how false these other deities were and that the word of the Father is the one true Lord, the Lord even of death. For this reason, it was he both born and manifested as man, For this he died and rose, in order that, eclipsing by his works all other human deeds, he might recall men from all the paths of error to know the Father. As he says himself, I came to seek and to save that which was lost. When, then, the minds of men had fallen finally to the level of sensible things, the word submitted to appear in a body, in order that he, as man, might center their senses on himself, and convince them through his human acts that he himself is not man only, but also God, the word and wisdom of the true God. This is what Paul wants to tell us when he says that ye, being rooted and grounded in love, may be strong to apprehend with all the saints what is the length and breadth and height and depth and to know the love of God that surpasses knowledge so that ye may be filled unto all the fullness of God. The self-revealing of the word is in every dimension above, in creation, below, in the incarnation, in the depth, in Hades, in the breadth throughout the world. All things have been filled with the knowledge of God. For this reason, he did not offer the sacrifice on behalf of all immediately. For if he had surrendered his body to death and then raised it again at once... He would have ceased to be an object of our senses. Instead of that, he stayed in his body and let himself be seen in it, doing acts and giving signs which showed him to be not only man, but also God the Word. There were thus two things which the Savior did for us by becoming man. He banished death from us and made us anew. And invisible and imperceptible as in himself he is, he became visible through his works and revealed himself as the word of the Father, the ruler and king of the whole creation. There is a paradox in this last statement, which we must now examine. The word was not hedged in by his body. Nor did his presence in the body prevent his being present everywhere as well. When he moved his body, he did not cease also to direct the universe by his mind and might. No, the marvelous truth is that being the word, so far from being himself contained by anything, he actually contained all things himself. In creation, he is present everywhere, yet is distinct in being from it. Ordering, directing, giving life to all, containing all, yet is he himself the uncontained, existing solely in his Father. As with the whole, so also is it with the part. Existing in a human body to which he himself gives life, 
He is still source of life to all the universe, present in every part of it, yet outside the whole. And he is revealed both through the works of his body and through his activity in the world. It is indeed the function of soul to behold things that are outside the body, but it cannot energize or move them. A man cannot transport things from one place to another, for instance, merely by thinking about them. Nor can you or I move the sun and the stars just by sitting at home and looking at them. With the word of God in his human nature, however, it was otherwise. His body was for him not a limitation, but an instrument so that he was both in it and in all things and outside all things, resting in the Father alone at one and the same time. This is the wonder. As man, he was living a human life. And as word, he was sustaining the life of the universe. And as son, he was in constant union with the Father. Not even his birth from a virgin, therefore, changed him in any way. Nor was he defiled by being in the body. Rather, he sanctified the body by being in it. For his being in everything does not mean that he shares the nature of everything, only that he gives all things their being and sustains them in it. Just as the sun is not defiled by the contact of its rays with earthly objects, but rather enlightens and purifies them. So he who made the sun is not defiled by being made known in a body, but rather the body is cleansed and quickened by his indwelling. Who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. You must understand, therefore, that when writers on this sacred theme speak of him as eating and drinking and being born, they mean that the body, as a body, was born and sustained with the food proper to its nature, while God, the Word, who was united with it, was at the same time ordering the universe and revealing himself through his bodily acts as not man only, but God. Those acts are rightly said to be his acts because the body which did them did indeed belong to him and none other. Moreover, it was right that they should be thus attributed to him as man in order to show that his body was a real one and not merely an appearance. For from such ordinary acts as being born and taking food, He was recognized as being actually present in the body. But by the extraordinary acts which he did through the body, he proved himself to be the Son of God. That is the meaning of his words to the unbelieving Jews. If I do not the works of my Father, believe me not. But if I do, even if ye believe not me, Believe my works, that ye may know that the Father is in me, and I in the Father. 
Invisible in himself, he is known from the works of creation. So also, when his Godhead is veiled in human nature, his bodily acts still declare him to be not only man, but the power and word of God. To speak authoritatively to evil spirits, for instance, and to drive them out is not human, but divine. And who could see him curing all the diseases to which mankind is prone and to still deem him mere man and not also God? He cleansed lepers. He made the lame to walk. He opened the ears of the deaf and the eyes of the blind. There was no sickness or weakness that he did not drive away. Even the most casual observer can see that these were acts of God. The healing of the man born blind, for instance, who but the father and artificer of man, the controller of his whole being, could thus have restored the faculty denied at birth. He who did thus must surely be himself the Lord of birth. This is proved also at the outset of his becoming man. He formed his own body from the virgin. And that is no small proof of his Godhead, since he who made that was the maker of all else. And would not anyone infer from the fact of that body being begotten of a virgin only, without human father, that he who appeared in it was also the maker and Lord of all beside. Again, consider the miracle at Cana. Would not Anyone who saw the substance of water transmuted into wine understand that he who did it was the Lord and maker of the water that he changed. He was for the same reason that he walked on the sea as on dry land to prove to the onlookers that he had mastery over all. And the feeding of the multitude when he made little into much so that from five loaves, 5,000 mouths were filled, did not that prove him none other than the very Lord whose mind is over all? <laughs> 